Well, one day, a young man came to the great philosopher Socrates to ask him for his help and instruction on being a public speaker, um, an orator, a debater. Uh, the only problem is, is once he was introduced to this great man, he began to talk and talk and talk and talk to the point where Socrates wasn't even able to reply to his requests for help. Um, when he did finally get a word in edgewise, he said, fine, I will take you on, young man, but I'm going to have to charge you double the fee. He said, double the fee, why? Socrates said, because I have two lessons to teach you, how to hold your tongue and how to use your tongue. And frankly, I think that's probably something that, to an extent, every one of us in this room could identify with, right? We have trouble holding our tongue and we have trouble saying the right things in the right ways, and that's what James is going to address today for every single woman in this room. It's going to help us with that. Now, science says that this thing that you've got between your teeth is not your strongest muscle. We might think it is. It never gets tired, right? It just keeps going and going, okay? But <clears throat> your strongest muscle is actually your jaw. But it is definitely your most powerful muscle. In fact, it is eight muscles. There are eight muscles that allow your tongue to do what it does, and it allows your tongue to go in any direction that it wants to. Kind of like an elephant's trunk, you know, it just can go anywhere. And that makes it a unique part of our bodies. But when you couple that with the fact that we were made in the image of God, we are the only ones of his creations to be made in his image, that means we can think, we can reason, we can ponder our existence on this planet, we can ponder him. We get the chance to communicate unlike any other creature that he made. But when you think about how sin entered the world, and fairly quickly, you understand that our powerful tongue gives us unlimited potential for good, as well as unlimited potential for evil, right? I came across what I thought was the best description, and that's what this reminds me of, the unlimited potential for good or evil. This is my best description of your tongue outside the Bible, okay? This man says, our words are like nitroglycerin. They can blow up bridges and they can heal hearts. Sounds to me like Solomon, life and death are in the power of the tongue. So praise the Lord we have James today because he's going to help us talk about how powerful our tongue is, but also hopefully give us some things to work on with controlling our tongue and also using our tongue to help and heal those around us. And I know you need this lesson because we all need this lesson. You need this lesson before you get to small group today, right? In other words, there will be immediate application of the lesson. Like the minute you stand up, there will be immediate application. It's so great. Um, but you're also gonna need it when you pick your kids up. You're gonna need it when you go to work today maybe or if you're connecting with your husband. You need it before you drive the streets of Orange County. So everybody needs this lesson no matter who you are. That's good, because James has a lot to teach us. Let's take his instructions one verse at a time to start out here. Verse number one says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Okay, now I'm thinking, you're probably thinking, hey, Carlin, how did you get the short straw on this one? I, I have no idea, um, but I will say, wow, powerful text for me and for you, right, for us all. 
It's a great warning and I love it. Okay, now, it looks pretty straightforward. Verse one, avoid being a teacher, right? I mean, that's, right, just don't do it. Do anything but that, basically, is what James is telling us. But do you really think that's what James is trying to say? I don't think so. I think we need to look at it a little bit closer. The word for teacher is didaskalos. You've got it in your homework. And that is, yes, the word for the person who has the occupation of imparting knowledge to others. It's that simple. But both in the Bible and their culture, um, there was an understanding that if a student was fully trained, he would be like his teacher. Okay, that is a much higher expectation for teachers than what we normally think, right? That makes this job even more important, that the student would be like the teacher. Now, of course, we know that when the church began, there was no written New Testament. But guess what? Nobody had a copy of the Old Testament either. They had to go to synagogue every week just to hear it read to them. They were completely dependent on someone else teaching them God's word and God's ways. And that made teachers even more important and a critical job there. Then when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says that God gave the church apostles and prophets and teachers. Now you see, when a church was started in a local town, it was the apostles and prophets that brought the good news and started that church. But as soon as it was planted, they moved on. They didn't hang out. The church planners, they went to the next town. But a teacher was left there to care for, love, and teach the new Christians in that location. So you can see that it was a critical job. The teacher was a critical job. And frankly, it's an enormous responsibility then and now. Yes, we all have a Bible. You have one right now in front of you. You probably have 20 of them at home or access to 20 of them. But we all still know that we need someone who knows the languages, has studied the culture, has spent hour after hour trying to figure out what this is trying to tell us. We need that to help us understand the word, right? We need teachers then, and we need them now. But it says right here, not many. Okay, that comes right at the front. It's actually there for emphasis. It's there on purpose. James did this on purpose because he was trying to tell us, like I said, avoid being a teacher. But we know he doesn't just want less teachers. We understand when we read the whole verse that he wants the right kinds of teachers. If you're teaching, you should be the right kind. Verse 1 says, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now that's the point. It's having the right kinds of teachers that can stand up to that greater strictness. This is a warning that teachers will be held to a higher standard. God doesn't want people just to share his word willy-nilly and do it however they want. He wants them to do it with care and sobriety. So whenever we speak for God and his word, we are going to be judged with greater strictness because we're speaking for him. And that's a good thing for everyone in this room to remember as we're thinking of point one, because this applies to everyone in the room in a way. I know it looks like it's talking to the people with the microphone on, and it is. I will honestly admit that. But what he's going to say to people like me is going to apply in some ways to every single person here. He wants us to have caution when we share the word of God. He wants us to practice that caution. And we should all know, point number one, that we'll answer for our words. 
we should all know that we'll answer for our words. You will and I will. Every one of us will. But why would he put it like that? Why did I put it like that? Why did I put it with a we? You're not used to seeing a we in the points. I put it that way because that's what James does in this very verse. He goes from second person plural, you all, to third person plural, we, right in the middle of this verse. He's leaving the door open for more people. He's talking not only to teachers, official teachers, he's talking to himself and he's talking to his readers as well. He says, avoid this if you can, but if not, know that you will be judged more strictly as you share the word of God. Now, the word judged means exactly what you think it means. It means to be evaluated. And in fact, it gives the feeling of the potential of finding error and wrong when you're evaluated. These who get up to speak are going to be facing more scrutiny than the rest. But the Bible has already said things that, mean, that remind us that everyone is going to face accountability for their words. You read it yesterday in your DBR. Don't you love it when God does that? Ha, I've had this already written, and I was like, yes. Matthew 12, 36 came up in your daily Bible reading yesterday, and it was a promise that every single person will give an account for every careless word that comes from your mouth. It's not written to teachers. It's not written to pastors. It's not written to people with microphones. It's written to everyone. And in fact, verse 37 said, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Dun, dun, dun. Everybody. Okay. Now, yes, I am going to circle back to you and I'm going to speak to everybody. But I do have to take a moment, well, probably three, maybe, to talk to those who actually wear a microphone and have an official teaching position. Okay? Because that's what the verse is talking about. So we have to talk about that. People who publicly teach God's word says right here, you're going to have more accountability. And we can understand that because it's one thing to mess up when you're talking to two people. It's something completely different to mess up when you're talking to 200 people, right? The potential for those people to take what you say and to run with it and fall into sin or error or do something wrong rises exponentially the more people that are listening to you, right? So there is going to be greater accountability. James is warning them to be careful and I want to tell you, there are not just 10 of us or whatever, however many people teach up here. There are actually probably 100 teachers at our church because there are many of you here who teach in all different posts across this church. This is talking to you. If you share the word of God and you speak for God, this is speaking to you. He wants you to be careful. So let me speak to you. If you have a leadership post, a teaching post somewhere, whether it's Sunday school, Awana, co-leading the HFG with your husband. Maybe it's uh, Narrow, True North, NAVMO, Women in Faith, small group leader at Women's Bible Study. This is for you. If you're speaking the word of God, this is for you, okay? Not just for the microphone people. It isn't about what people think of you. This is about what God thinks of you when you stand in whatever that post is. Because God's reviewing your transcript. It's like he was sitting there when you were doing it. He knows everything you said when you taught that lesson, everything you said when you did that small group. And he sees much more than, or hears, I should say, much more than what we say. He also sees our hearts and our deeds. He sees it all at the same time, okay? He knows if we're like Pharisees. 
They were accused of being whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones inside. That means they looked good on the outside, but inside they were rotten. If you're teaching the word of God in whatever post you're in, and you're telling these people to do things that you yourself are not doing, you are a whitewashed tomb with dead man's bones inside. We call it hypocrisy, right? You can't be saying things that you're not doing or at least attempting to do. And he also sees our deeds when we're standing up and speaking for him in whatever our post is, our deeds. He knows how faithful or unfaithful you've been even as you were preparing for that lesson. He knows the kind of wife, the kind of mom you were to those around you in the days leading up to that responsibility or the day after when you were so tired from your teaching post. He knows the words you let fly from your mouth, unchecked in the midst of that situation. He knows if you're doing your service to please men, get applause from them, or if you're doing it to please the Lord. And he also knows, frankly, how much effort and energy and how well you did at handling the word of God rightly. He knows all of that at the same time. We are laid bare before him as we're teaching in whatever aspect we are. Now, of course, there's going to be more pressure on those who open the word of God, and that is James' intention. He wants us to feel that. That's exactly why this verse is here. You, you see, God loves his kids, and he loves his kids in this room and at this church more than you love them. And he will not have anybody mess with his kids and take his kids down wrong paths or say things to them that they shouldn't be saying, that might lead them to make decisions they shouldn't be making. He really cares. In fact, he says you're going to be, you know, uh, fit for a wonderful cement necklace. You might as well have that and be thrown in the Sea of Galilee to drown than make one of these other Christians sin because of what you've done or said. So it's very important. This is a flashing neon sign. Don't do it. And if you do it, be cautious. Be careful. Okay. Now, I do understand the draw of wearing the microphone. I do understand the draw of getting up and speaking. We all feel like we have something important to share. That's why we like it, right? And if you should be doing it, you better get a ministry post if you don't have one. If God has gifted you to do it, you have to do it. This is your job. This is his calling for you. Let me say this as kindly as possible. Um, unless God has gifted you, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, being gifted to do this is not because you have a desire to do it. That is only one element, desiring that kind of thing. There's at least two other things that need to be in place for us to figure out if this is your gifting. One of them is, are you effective, extraordinarily effective at that? Are people walking away from hearing you teach the word of God and they're not only understanding, but they're ready to do it and their lives are changed? Are you particularly effective at it? But the third element is probably one of the most important, but it's the most neglected. Are people around you affirming it? And what I mean by that is godly people in leadership, um, wise counselors. I don't mean your best friend who says, good job. That was so great. Well, they love you and they're, they're going to say that anytime, right? You know, your husband and your, your best friend. Yay. But to people you don't even know or who have this mm, wisdom and maturity in the church and in leadership and in ministry, are they affirming that you're particularly good and effective at this? Okay, so you have to have all three of those. You see, every gift comes from God. He is the one who gifts those who are supposed to be doing this. 
And uh, it's not a personality thing. It's not a, I was in Toastmasters as a teenager thing. This is a God thing, okay, right? He gifts everybody with something to benefit the church. It's about the church being blessed, not the person. So if you're supposed to teach the Bible, you better, you better get to it. That is what God planned for you to do, and don't neglect it. I, I, frankly, I, I know it's a lot of work, and I know you don't like living in the fishbowl. Hello? There's part of me that doesn't like it either. You know what? I would like to say what I want, wear what I want, sit where I want, and do what I want. I would. I don't get that chance. But you know what? Even that moment when I want to do that and just be fleshy and do whatever I want, um, it only lasts a second. Because really, it's a fleeting moment because the real me, the one that lives inside me, the one that's truly Carlin, knows that I never feel more alive, more useful, and more full of joy than when I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. And you know what? You feel the same way. When you're doing your gift, there's nothing you want more. I would call it your sweet spot. Your gift is your sweet spot, and you don't want to do anything other than that because you're compelled to do it, and you know it's the right fit for you. That's how I feel, too. That's how God makes us feel about our gifts. And I want you to do your sweet spot, whatever it is. So if you're supposed to teach this book... Let me just tell you, thank you, we need you. Yes, please. Do we need to understand the word of God more? Of course we do. Yes, we love you, thank you. We could use all of you. But if it's not to teach the word of God, I still wanna say thank you because we need you too. We need every single one of you to do your sweet spot. Whatever it is, I need you to do it. Our church needs you to do it. God needs you to do it. The students or the adults in this church need you to do it with all your heart. We can't function as the body of Christ the way we're supposed to unless you do your sweet spot. So don't worry if this isn't it. And, and please don't worry about all the teachers. You're going to, oh, well, I need to tell them when they're not doing right or they're being, I saw them at the grocery store and they were saying this to their kids, whatever, okay. We all feel that, whoo, I need to be on them. Okay, you know what? Just remember this verse and realize that God does a really good job of making sure his teachers are humbled and he'll take care of them, and he will make sure that they get stricter judgment. Here's the promise. They're just not going to go crazy. It's gonna, he's going to take care of it for us all. But I stated in the first point that there is an element in which every one of us needs to be involved, and now I'm going to get back on that hat, okay? Every one of us needs to be thinking about the fact that we will answer for our words. And part of that comes because every single one of us in this room should be teaching the word of God in an informal way. You should be speaking up for God and talking about his word all the time. We need you to be doing that. Every person needs to do that, whether you have a microphone on or not. You need to be speaking up in your small group. You need to be a voice that, that echoes the Lord's voice and helps that woman to do that thing. Don't just depend on your small group leader. She needs your help. She needs you to speak the truth to those in your group. You also need to be that in your friend group. You need to be that at your ministry post. You need to be talking about the word of God and sharing his truth all over the place. We need you to do that. 
If you're a parent, you may not have thought you were a teacher, but if you're a parent, you're a teacher and you didn't even sign up for it. I don't care who teaches your kid math. I don't know. I don't care which method you choose. But if you're a parent, you, it is your responsibility. God's got his finger on your chest to tell you you're the one who needs to teach them the most important things they'll ever learn. You are the one, not their Sunday school teacher, who needs to teach them to love God first and most. You are the one that needs to teach them how to pray. You are the one that needs to teach them how to trust God. And they need to see you doing that. You're the one that needs to teach them how to say no to sin and how to fight it. Okay, all of those lessons are things that every parent that's a Christian woman should be teaching that their children. And I don't want you to forget, there's a tricky passage in the end of uh, Hebrews 5 and the beginning of Hebrews 6 where the author actually chides those in the church. He chides those in the church because they aren't teaching yet. This is what he says to them. This time, by this time, you should have been teachers. You need someone to teach you the basics again. You need milk and not solid food. This was not a at a girl passage. This was a you're in trouble. God thought that these people were far enough along in their Christian walk that they should have been teaching the word of God. That was his assessment. These people in Hebrews had a steady diet of God's word every single week, and so do you. And if God thinks you've gotten to the point where you need to be teaching the word of God and being more grown up and mature, you should be, right? He calls them spiritual babies because they were not passing on the word of truth like they should have been and God was not pleased with them. Don't let that be said of you. We all should be ready to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's written to all of us. That is not in a pastoral epistle. That is written to everyone, all Christians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And don't forget Titus 2, right? Titus 2, Paul doesn't say, hey, Titus, go teach the women this. He says, hey, Titus, tell the older women to teach the younger women, which means everyone in here is a teacher of God's word in an informal manner. I don't care how much older you are, or younger, I don't care your age at all. If you've been a Christian for a week, find someone who's been a Christian for less than that, or a month, or whatever. Um, help them, encourage them on their path of sanctification and following after Jesus. And for those of you who've been Christians for 10, 20, 30 plus years, you had better be investing your life in helping those back down the path to follow Christ more faithfully. It's your job. It actually says that you should be teaching them what is good, and it even gives us the curriculum. The syllabus is right there in Titus 2. We're supposed to teach others who come up behind us to love their husbands and kids, to be self-controlled and pure, to faithfully work at home. I didn't say only work at home. I just said faithfully do what has to be done at home, and to be kind, to live a self-controlled and pure life, and to live in a God-honoring way with your husbands. Those are the things that we're supposed to be teaching other women, every one of us. It's our job description. But this passage would say, do it with caution and sobriety, okay? Because it's not just passing on the right information, it's also having the right heart. Having the right heart as we pass on the information. We don't share God's word so that everybody can see how smart, godly, funny we are. We do it because we're compelled by God and we do it with humility and deference. And I'm going to give you three examples, three little stories in the book of Numbers, which proves this to us. There was 
three different sets of people in the book of Numbers who wanted to stand up and teach and lead in a public way, and they all crashed and burned because they all did it with an I've got this prideful kind of attitude. The first was Miriam and Aaron. They literally said, has God only spoken through Moses and not through us? I mean, to me, the audacity of even saying that, I just can't even believe it. But in Numbers 12, 2, it says that God heard them. And he comes down and he defends Moses. And he says, hey, I talk to other people through visions and dreams. But God says, I talk to Moses face to face. He basically tells them, you shouldn't be saying this. You shouldn't have this kind of attitude. And he strikes Miriam with leprosy. Talk about judgment, stricter judgment. Yeah, okay. In number 16, it's a guy named Korah. He's from a Levite family, which means he's from a priestly family, but he says, hey, I think me and my family should be just as much leaders and teachers as Moses and Aaron's family. Well, God comes down the next day to settle this dispute, and at that point, Moses says, hey, everybody, step back from Korah's tents. And verse 32 of number 16 says, the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them. Um, God chooses his leaders and you don't, Okay. So, whew, Korah, that's a good reminder for us. And then in Numbers 2, there was two guys, and these were actually Aaron's sons. They were from a priestly family. In fact, they had a God-given teaching post. But God says they didn't do it right. They didn't do it right. And because they didn't right, do it right, and they were, you know, um, what does it say? They were offering strange fire that they were killed for it on the spot. So let me say it again. God gifts and God chooses his teachers and his leaders. He tells us not just what to do, but how to do it. So if you should teach, teach. Now, for those of you who don't know, because there's a there's number of you here who don't know what you should be doing, find something you enjoy and pick a ministry post in that area. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that. You're not going and picking the thing you hate the most. I'm going to go do that at the church. No, find something you enjoy and then do it faithfully. Do it with all your heart, whether it's partners, you know, small group, um, Sunday school, whatever it is, go and do it with all your heart. Do it at a pat. Do it faithfully. And what will happen is that over time, God will allow those in leadership, that those that have, you know, positions in that ministry to go, wow, that woman, she's so faithful. She's ready to do whatever we need. She's really good at this. Look at how the kids listen to her. Look at how she comes up with these creative ideas and, and it just really meets this need here. And they will ask you to do more responsibility. And then God will raise you up. There's no need for you to go, pick me, pick me. Okay, just let God organically bring about the raising up of you if you are supposed to have these positions. And then if you join the rest of us to do this, um, Pastor Mike and Stephanie Schwartz will urgently um, expect you to allow the Bible to speak its message through you and that you will not be walking around preaching your own two cents. You see, that's even our second distinctive. Our leaders here will allow the Bible to teach its message and not preach your own. You might think the person up here is just bamping about whatever they want to. No, they are driven by what the text says. And if they don't do that, they will not be asked back again. It's our second distinctive. It's very important to us that every teacher allows the Bible to teach its message. So how are you going to teach the Bible faithfully in whatever capacity you are asked to teach it in? Well, it's pretty simple. To be a careful teacher, you have to love the book. 
You have to know, every, know everything you can about the passage, live it, love it, do it, and then you beg God to help you pass it on faithfully and carefully. But always remembering you'll be held accountable someday for how you passed it on. Okay, well, I was a perpetual teacher's pet. Maybe you don't know that about me, but I'm always wondering, if you're being evaluated, how do I get the best grade possible? That was me in school. So I want to know, how do we get the best grade possible from God when it comes to our passing on of his word? Verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he said, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Listen, the only way for us to get good marks from God with our powerful tongue is to bridle it, to curb our words. That's the implication of this verse. Let's write point number two like this. We need to work to restrain your words. Work to restrain your words. Work to restrain your words. This verse says we all stumble in many ways. We know what it is to stumble, to trip and fall, right? Well, spiritually, that means that we say things that we shouldn't. We sin. We say things that displease God. I don't think I have to convince you that you sin with your mouth. Do I? I bet if you rolled the transcript back from this morning, you could go, ah, I did it again. Or, ah, that shouldn't have come out that way. Or, ah, I wish I could take that back, right? You could think it through. If not this morning, then last night. We all know what it is to dominate a conversation, to say too much, to complain, to let out some juicy gossip, to uh, be divisive, to interrupt, to let out those impatient zingers. Every one of us does it. We fall a lot. And we're not the only one. Isaiah the prophet. You know, we, we uh, love that chapter six, right? He sees God high and lifted up. What is his response? He says, woe is me. I am lost because I am a man of unclean lips. It's the first thing he thinks of when he sees God. I'm messed up. I've messed up. So words flow from our mouths all the time, most of the time without us even thinking about them, and they get us into trouble. One wise man said, I have often regretted my speech, but never my silence. <laughs> yeah, we need to learn to hold back and bridle our tongue, James says. And if we do, we'll be perfect women. You've seen that word perfect before in James. Uh, 1.4 says when we're going through trials, we will learn to persevere and we become more perfect. It means mature. It means it's teleos. It means just right. Okay, Matthew 5 said that God is perfect when he loves his enemies and he encourages us to do the same and be perfect like your heavenly father. Here's another opportunity to be perfect, mature, fully grown. Like it or not, you can tell how grown up someone is in the Lord by simply listening to them for a few minutes. Just let them talk. They don't know you're being they're being evaluated. They don't know you're really paying attention. But you can tell right away by the words that fall from their mouth, whether they're mature in Christ or immature. I would encourage you to find those women that you can tell are good at restraining their words and thinking through what they're saying, and you be the fly on the wall in their life as much as they will let you, because they will inspire you. They will be great role models for you in holding back what you say. And I would challenge you to do it, just try it in one conversation. How about the first one when you stand up? Just try to restrain your lips. Now, okay, you're going to say, oh, there'll be no talking. Trust me. There will be talking. You try to be the one that restrains your lips. Go to small group and restrain your lips. Okay, that does not mean you don't talk. 
Every small group leader is like, oh no, they're not gonna talk today. It's not what I said. But try to restrain your lips and show some self-control. We know this is gonna be a continual problem, right? It even implies that it is in our text. We're going to try, we're going to fail, and the great thing is confession, repentance, and forgiveness is available anytime, free of charge, because Jesus already paid our bill. Yes, you're going to mess up. This passage says you're going to keep messing up, but forgiveness is always there. And if you start trying to apply this very point, you will have less to confess. If you just try to hold it in, I know you're going to feel like you're going to explode, but you will not explode from holding back. Now, James says everyone stumbles. But there was one guy who wasn't stumbling. There was one guy who was perfect. In fact, James shared a room with him, I'm sure, growing up. Because as James is thinking, I mess up with my words all the time, he's thinking, but my brother doesn't, right? Because he's Jesus' brother. And uh, let's hear how Peter describes James' perfect brother in 1 Peter 2. 21 to 23, it says, To this you've been called Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Never did he mislead. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus never said a wrong word. He is our example. No matter whether he was threatened, mistreated, reviled, humiliated, he didn't say a word. And sometimes that is the best strategy, right? Truly withhold, not just hold back some, hold back all. He tells us to bridle our words. <clears throat> he implies it. He doesn't say bridle words, but he implies it when he says, also, it will bridle your life. Um, now, a bridle, of course, is that strap that holds that little tiny piece of metal in a horse's mouth, right? And it allows the horse to go here or there. It's, it's controlling the horse, right? So we need to be starting to control our mouths. But James ends this passage by saying, if you're disciplined in your mouth, you'll be able to be disciplined in your whole life. And we understand that. You practice self-control in one area, it is definitely going to bleed over into others. In fact, Proverbs 21:23 says this, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And we know that is so true. So how do we do this? I have a few suggestions for you, as you knew I would. A, B, C, D, letter A. Pray and ask God for help. Pray and ask God for help. This is all under point two on restraining. God is the God of the universe, the almighty one who can do anything. Do you think he could help you hold back? Of course he can. He has all power, right? So pray and ask God to help you. Letter B, stop and think about your words. Stop and think about your words. See, that's a lot of our problem, isn't it? We just go, Blah, 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 blah. And we never think about what we're actually saying. Proverbs 15, 28 says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Ugh, don't do that. I used to have two post-it notes up on my desk for years and years when we had desk computers. But now, you know, we take our laptops everywhere we go. And one of them was this. I had to actually rewrite it this week because I realized I don't know where that went. Okay. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? This is not unique to me. I don't know where it came from, but it doesn't matter. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? You want to slow your words down? Think about that. Yeah, 
Think about that. Ponder that before you open your mouth. That one got me slowed down a little bit, but then the second one came in and, you know, finished the deal. The second one is, some things just don't need to be said. Again, I don't know where this came from, but some things just don't need to be said. Do you need to be the one that talks about that? No, you don't. With your husband, with your adult child, with your friend, some things just don't need to be said. When I look at those two, it helps me slow down. And sometimes it makes me say nothing at all. Letter C is say what God says, not what you think. Say what God says, not what you think. We would stumble way less if we did this one thing. Say what God says, not what you think. Even this month, someone reminded me as I was urging them to do this one thing in their life. And they did it kindly. Don't get mad at them. I needed it. They said, you know what? What you're urging me to do is actually only one way to apply a biblical principle. It's not the only way. And my jaw basically dropped open. And I had one of these moments of, aha, they're absolutely right. Just because I think it's the best way doesn't mean it's the only way. The fourth one, letter D, is say less. Say less. You want to restrain your words and you want to be successful at this, just letter D, say less. Proverbs 10, 19, this was in your homework. It makes it very simple. When words are many, transgression, or stumbling with our words. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. means wise, mature, perfect. Try it. Try it for one conversation. And when you can do one conversation, try it for one hour. Oh, if you've done it for one hour, can you go for two? Like, could you build up? Yes, we could. Proverbs 10.8 teaches the truth of this point so well. It says, the wise of heart will receive commandments, even this difficult one of muzzling our mouths, okay? The wise in heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. We got to work hard at restraining our lips. But there's more to controlling our tongues than just knowing that God is listening and will judge us and holding back and bridling our tongue. Verse number three goes on. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Yes, our tongues are really small, but they can do great things. So now we need to turn our focus from restraining to doing some of those great things with our words. Or point three, direct more words for good. Direct more words for good. And of course, he gives us these two huge, powerful images. The first is that bit in the mouth of the horse, right, with the bridle. Remember, it's that tiny piece of metal. But with that tiny piece of metal on those straps, firmly in the hands of a capable person, this huge, muscular, quote-unquote, wild animal that probably outweighs us by 2,000 pounds will go here or there. Because of that bit, they will, it will obey us. It will be persuaded to go one way or the other. <clears throat> Even the most difficult and rebellious can be moved around because of a tiny piece of metal with some straps. The second was a giant Roman ship. 
you read about Paul being the shipwreck and the 276 people. 276 people, about this many people were on the ship with Paul. And the ship was actually fairly large. It probably didn't stretch the whole way across, but Roman ships were about 160 feet. That's about 50 yards. 50 yards if you're a golfer. Okay, so that's like, I don't know, most of this room, the ship is that long, most of this room. It's big. It's big, and that ship can be pushed around by wild winds and tumultuous storms, but it takes this little tiny rudder, which is really like, almost looks like an oar with a hinge on it. It can be moved with this little tiny oar with a hinge on it, and it's this big if it's in the hand of a capable pilot. It can be guided here and there. It's not the power of the rudder, it's the desire of the person. So even an inexperienced and weak person could make a ship go in whatever direction he wants. And both these images show us how something really small can make a huge difference. That's the point. Something really small can make a huge difference. Now, obviously, the impact of a godly mouth is totally out of the proportion with the size of it. Right? It says that this little thing makes great boasts and can do great things. And in this case, boasting is not a prideful, bad thing. It's not a boastful, bad thing. It's an influence thing. With the right encouragement, someone in your small group can get hope. They can get hope in a desperate situation because of this. They can be safe from horrible sin and falling in their life because of this. They can have the courage to climb their Mount Everest of pain and suffering with comfort and perspective. With this, your words matter. What you say to them matters. In the moment, you can do so much good for them. Proverbs 15, 23 says this, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. When we say the right stuff, big things could happen. But how do we maximize the good in our words? We have to go to one passage, the only one I'm going to take you to, Ephesians 4. Go back a couple books. It was in your homework too, but I want to make a couple observations. Ephesians 4.29. I said it wrong, I think. Ephesians 4.29 is the verse we're going to. And it starts with, let no corrupting words come from your mouth. Corrupting words are good-for-nothing words. Stop the good-for-nothing words. We just talked about that. You want more on that? Go back and review point two. Okay, let's get to the second half because that's point three. We want our words to do great things. Here's three ways we can have them do great things. One is that our words should be good for building up. If they're good for building up, they're helping people grow. It's that simple. They're helping people be strong. Okay, then it says they should fit the occasion. That means we should say the right thing at the right time in the right way. To fit the occasion, you say the right thing at the right time in the right way. And the last hint about saying these great things is they should give grace to those who hear. That means it should point them to Christ and his goodness. It should point them to Christ and his goodness. Now, I don't know what this will be exactly. It could be the gospel that does all these things for someone. It could be a biblical truth like Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's a good biblical truth that could be this great thing. But your words should work to edify, fit, and make people look at Jesus. Those three things. So how can you get better at this? <clears throat> I think we need to have the word of God deep inside of us. 
It's not something you can do by just going, I spent 10 minutes in this morning, boom, I'm done. Um, we have to get God's word deep inside of us so that when you cut us, we're bleeding God's word. And that's a long-term process. You can start it today, but it's something you need to work on day after day after day after day. And I would say especially one thing, meditation. Meditating on God's word is getting it deep inside of you. Meditation seems, means to uh, mutter, to repeat, mutter, 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 to say things over and over and over and over. Meditating is like a cow that chews its cud. You see, that cow takes it in, swallows it, but then calls it back up and chews on it some more. That's what you need to be doing with the word of God on a regular basis. That's what's going to make you good at saying these right words to people at the right time. Calling the scripture back up again and again and again so that it's changing your life and your speech. Proverbs 25, 11 puts it this way. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Saying the right thing at the right time can accomplish great things. One example of that was a guy who was um, <clears throat> visited by his Sunday school teacher at work one Saturday. And this guy... Um, I guess he hadn't been coming. He was like in the guy's small group, but he hadn't been coming lately and he knew things were rough at home. So his Sunday school teacher basically walked by and decided to say, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna visit that guy at work on Saturday. By the time they were finished chatting, that young boy had surrendered his life to Jesus Christ because of that Sunday school teacher. And um, that guy became the most sought after evangelist ever. He was sought after in Europe, he was sought after in America, he led thousands of people to Christ. Even today, there's a Bible school name for him. There's an ne international network of radio stations, there's a publishing house, um, all these different things. And his name was D.L. Moody, and you've heard of him. I bet you haven't heard of the guy whose good words made that happen. His name was Edward Kimball. And he just happened to be the guy who gave the good word and God did great things. Another person that had the opportunity to, to say good words that did great things was Abigail in your Bible. First Samuel 25 tells her story. She was married to a cruel and uncaring, miserable man named Nabal. David and his uh, men actually came by and said, hey, uh, could you give us some food, Nabal? We've been protecting your flocks. And Nabal was so mean and cruel, he said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, uh, how do we say this? David kind of gets torqued about that. Uh, and he says, I'm going to kill every male in the, in the whole family of Nabal, his whole household. And then he uh, goes and Abigail finds out about it. See? And once Abigail finds out about it, who's Nabal's wife, she gathers a hearty snack and she rushes over to David. And she says some edifying, fitting, and gracious words. And this is the response that he gives to her. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what David said to Abigail after she had laid some good words on him. Blessed be the God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you, Abigail. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. You see, it was another well-placed bit and rudder in someone's path that stopped that bloodshed that day. So how can we do this? Sometimes I think we, we think this takes a huge effort. Yes, the picture of the horse, he's big and strong. And yes, the ship is big, but our part in this is so small. 
all we have to do is say a sentence, be the encouraging word, say the, the word to them, say the principle to them that they need to hear to get them through this. It's very simple. I remember in one of the worst storms of my life, it was, you know, many of you know I had infertility. You think, oh yeah, infertility, yeah, whatever. That was three and a half years before I had my first, but you may not know I had two and a half years before my last. That was 78 separate times God said, nope, not getting the longing of your heart. 78 times. It's a lot of times. But you know what? It only took someone with an encouraging word and a sentence usually to turn the ship around for me, to get me on the right path, and usually it was the word of God. One example is Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Use this to be the encouraging word that you give someone who needs it. It says this, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I still use that and pass that on to people. Sometimes our one encouraging sentence is a verse. At other times, sometimes our encouraging sentence is sharing a Bible story. Bible stories, people who've gone before us it matters, and it can change the course of our lives. Fortunately, I did not have a husband who was the comforter like Hannah's husband, who said, am I not better to you than 10 sons? He wasn't very encouraging. And mine is not like that, so that was good. Um, but one of the things he said to me in the midst of it was, have you ever noticed that almost all the people in the Bible, almost all the women that are your spiritual heroes suffered from infertility? And I was like, what? He's right. And frankly, every one of them ended up having children. That's what Mike would say too. Um, except one who was being disciplined. You can look it up later for your Bible trivia. But um, <clears throat> then he said to me, I want you to not look back on this time in our life with regret and have that Rachel moment. You read that one this week too. Give me children or I die, right? You know, that was bad. Don't look back on your sorrow and suffering with regret. Bible stories help with that. So sometimes you need to share Bible verses, and sometimes you need to share Bible stories, and it redirects that person and gets them back on track. Ladies, this doesn't cost you anything but love. This flows from that meditation. It flows from your love of the Word of God. This just flows from your life as a Christian. And then you can be the one who drops that, you know, wonderful nugget in that person's life and changes everything for them. Do this and Proverbs 12, 18 will be yours. It says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You could bring healing to a sister who needs you with that one sweet sentence. And I want to talk to you <clears throat> before we totally wrap up. We're not wrapped up yet. Don't close it up. I want to talk to you who think you have nothing to offer whether it's your job, your age, your health, your circumstance, you're like, I can't really do, she talks about ministry posts, I can never do, whatever, okay. Some of you feel like you have nothing to offer. Well, number one, it's not true in a lot of areas, but it's certainly not true here. If you think it, you need to say it to the person because you know, Paul needed a Barnabas and David needed a Jonathan and Moses needed an Aaron and her. They needed someone to come in and say the perfectly timed sentence to help them redirect the ship and get them back on the right path. Resolve that you're going to say one, how about just one encouraging thing in every conversation that you have. How simple that would be if you took the time to think and say one good word in each conversation. How about, I'm so glad to see you. 
thank you so much for your service. Do you know that somebody cleans up all that stuff every, every week? Thank you for your service that we didn't have to do when we got done. Could be, I'm praying for you. I know you need wisdom with the treatment that you're having. Could be, I'm praying for your adult son. I know he's not saved yet. It could just be, I love you. Can you say one sentence, one good sentence? Of course you can. You could say a whole bunch of them, in fact. But if you could say one, that would be great. Your tongue boasts of great things. What if some of those great things happened because of you? That would be awesome. Well, <clears throat> there was a gentleman who made drinks sparkle and desserts shimmer and even made President Nixon look not quite so shady um, with tricks of light. That's how an obituary starts for a man named Emilio Fiorentino. He died in 2013 um, at the age of 85, but he was known as the Mastro of Lighting. He had been, in his lifetime, the advisor for every single president, from Eisenhower to Clinton. He had illuminated all kinds of famous celebrities in his lifetime, Neil Diamond, Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, Muhammad Ali. He lit up everything from Epcot Center to uh, Jell-O to ginger ale. But his lighting career almost didn't happen. You see, a few weeks before his high school graduation, he found uh, a shell casing on the street in front of his home. And he thought, cool, I'm going to make a, a keychain out of it. Teenage boys, right? Let's make a keychain out of a, a, a shell casing. So he gets his soldering iron, but he doesn't realize that's a live round. In other words, that's a bullet. Of course, when he brings the soldering iron to it, it explodes, right? Shap shrapnel comes up, shoots right into his eye, and blinds him in his right eye, which, of course, as a lighting expert, you're going to kind of need that. Well, he's laying in the hospital, and one of his high school teachers comes and talks to him. He doesn't go, oh, I guess you're not going to be able to do this. Oh, what's your new path in life? No, you know what he says to him? He says, you're going to be the best one-eyed lighting designer ever. That was the encouraging word this man needed. And that man came to him and said that. And because of him, he went on to get his degree. He went on to teach at Indiana University, theater, lighting. And then from there, his, his career took off. And he became the mastro of lighting. But how did it happen? It happened because one person took the time to visit him. And then one person said the perfect word at the perfect time in the perfect way. And we all can do that too. Yeah, we can hold things back that we'd like to say, but we can also say good things at just the right moment and make great things happen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity you give us, even with our powerful tongue, to make a difference. When, we, when it is guarded, um, when we are filled with your Holy Spirit, but also really, really um, loving and following your book, the perfect words can come out at the perfect time. Lord, I do pray for our small groups, and I pray that we would restrain things that are unnecessary and that we would say things that are so good and helpful in women's lives. I know that our church will be even better as we learn to use our powerful tongue in a way that would please you. In Jesus' name, amen.